Welcome to a very different kind of bonus episode of This Week in the CLE, normally a weekday news discussion podcast by editors at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. This episode, though, is a discussion with and about an editor, former editor now at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, Mark Bosberg. We're recording this a week after the final day in Mark's 43-year journalism career. He's headed off for retirement. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm the editor of Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, and it has been my great fortune to have worked side-by-side with Mark for nearly 30 of his 43 years. We were a reporting team in Orlando, Florida, and in Cleveland before we both came editors in 2002. It's a rare thing these days for someone to spend their entire professional life as a journalist. Those who manage to do it are some of the best who have ever worked. Mark fits that bill. So welcome, Mark. Do you now join the ranks of former journalists who get on Facebook to explain to those of us still in the business everything that we're doing wrong? No. Thank you for the introduction. And no, I am never going to refer to myself as a former journalist or to contact you about anything that (laughs) might go wrong. (laughs) Look, the reason I asked you to do this special episode is because journalism can be rollicking. Um, I met you a couple of weeks ago to raise a toast to all you've done. And you said something that I'll never forget now. You said it was fun, often. It should be. And uh, with the right approach, and you have it too, um, it can be fun. Like I said, it should be fun. There's a lot of fun to be had. Okay, so to give this something of a framework, I asked you to put together some thoughts on what had been some of the most memorable stories, the ones that were your favorites, the people you've met, and you've had some great ones. So let's start with your trip on an aircraft carrier in the Atlantic Ocean when we were at the Orlando Sentinel. This is a this is a great tale, and I, I don't think many people uh, would would feel as good about it as you do looking back on it. Okay, well, uh, at the time, I was the temporary military affairs reporter, uh, and I was also at the time uh, having already applied to the plane dealer. So uh, I thought that I was probably a part-timer, although no one at the Sentinel knew that at the time. Um, And as the uh, military affairs reporter, I was invited to fly out to the aircraft carrier USS Kennedy, which was on a some sort of maneuvers out in the Atlantic and soon was going to make, um, I believe, Jacksonville its home port. So I at first turned down the invitation because uh, one, uh, by the time I went out there and came back, I might not have time to do a story. Uh, because I thought I'd be moving elsewhere, and that would not be right. But the editor, uh, who also got an invitation to fly out to the carrier, uh, heard that I had turned it down and insisted I go. So anyway, this involved flying out on one of those big uh, propeller-driven aircraft, but you still nonetheless did a tail hook landing on the carrier. And on the flight out, our plane missed the hook the first time. We had to soar around and do it again. 
Did you, you almost know, go into the drink? I mean, when what well, it I, was... I am sitting backwards, strapped into a windowless uh, back of a huge cargo plane that is really made to deliver tanks rather than journalists. So I saw nothing, but I and was overcome by fumes. I mean, the aircraft, uh, f- uh, the fuel uh, fumes were overpowering, but. I could clearly feel our descent, uh, and then I could f- clearly detect that we were taking off again, and then we tried it again. Uh, it also involved being uh, propelled off that deck on the trip home, uh, which is actually a little more scary than the tailhook landing. Uh, meanwhile, we were to spend the night on the carrier, and I was do a story. Um, but while we were there that night, they had a, a pretty serious fire. I never knew the true extent because we were all called back uh, into a secure area, which turned out to be the cafeteria. And we sat there all night while they put this fire up. Uh, so next morning, when I was supposed to be doing all this reporting, um, I was one had had no sleep, and two, um, most of the people there were no longer available for interviews. So, in many regards, it was a complete, uh, <laughs> complete waste of time. A great experience, but a complete waste of time. Um, and I returned, and uh, unfortunately, the plane dealer didn't. Uh, get back to me soon enough, and uh, I had to write a story, <laughs> um, which, if anyone ever goes back, it was a pretty lame story. But anyway, it was a cool experience, yes. Cool experience. The fire was, I remember, it was a pretty big news item. I mean, you know, yeah. fires on an aircraft carrier can be And I was good. on board and got nothing about it. But <laughs> <laughs> all right, you and I remember this like it was yesterday, but the explosion of the space shuttle Challenger is fading into history. When you were first hired in Orlando, you were in the Brevard County Bureau on the coast near Cape Canaveral. So when America finally returned to space, you covered it. Talk a little bit about how cool it was to see the shuttle take off regularly in the following years and what it was like to be part of that. Well, I I was there for the first uh, shuttle launch after Challenger, the Discovery launch. Um, So, and that was actually postponed once. So it meant getting up at like 4 a.m. two days in a row and being bussed out to the site. Um, But um, that was huge. uh, And obviously, Orlando made a big deal of it being the sort of the hometown paper. I think we did a special section, right? Yeah, yeah, they did. And, big. Uh, but I was part of the team that went out there and uh, witnessed the launch. Actually, I think I witnessed several of the launches, uh, but that one was certainly momentous. Um, and uh, I, at the time, lived in the city of Orlando and was in the glide path for the shuttles that were returning from space and landing at Kennedy. So um, they, when they broke the sound barrier, it felt like it was right over 
our house. I mean, every uh, every glass, every door, every cup and saucer in that house rattled when that thing uh, zoomed over. Um, and probably from where you were living too, we could all watch the launches um, from our front lawns or back lawns. Yeah, so, the coolest one was the one they did at night when they finally right. went up at night and it yes. just lit up the sky. Definitely. Um, and that the sound thing, I mean, it felt the first time that happened, it felt like a, like a cow had landed on my roof. <laughs> what right. is that? It's just, it's such a overpowering thud. Um, and then we got used to it and it just became kind of cool. I also got to see the, uh, shuttle land on the back of the 747 there. I can't remember why they sent me out. I was no longer in the Brevard Bureau, but did get to see that yeah it was really part of the culture when we were down there yes it was you and i actually were reporters in orlando for four or five years before we first teamed up but we did team up on one huge story the biggest hurricane that hit florida in modern times and we did it in an unusual way talk about the story the role we ended up playing in a story where we weren't supposed to have any role right that really was the beauty of it um this is in the days before um email and all that actually in the very early days of cell phones um but we we the paper sent out a team of reporters all over florida we had people in miami and uh well all over south florida and the gulf coast uh to station there embedded there to report when the storm hit um and as you recall, when the storm hit, all of those people lost their power and really couldn't go anywhere. Um, and so uh, you and I were on the Metro desk. Um, I guess I'm not sure what they initially planned for us, probably a rewrite duty, but um, it became apparent that with all our elaborate plans that they had no story um, for at least the first edition of next day's paper. Um, and I know there are people now who, uh, this sounds like ancient history, but at the time we had a library filled with phone books from every, every two bit town in Florida. Uh, so we pulled out the phone books for Homestead, I believe, um, and just started randomly dialing numbers um, and amazingly found some people who they had no roof on their house, but they still had phone service. And we got some very cool interviews. I remember one of us uh, talking to someone who was in their bathroom, looking up at the stars, talking to us, right? I think I think I had that one. I think you actually reached more people than I did, but I had the one without the roof. It was bizarre. They're sitting in their bathroom, their roof is gone, and they're you know, and and you know, we were kind of laughing because we we were reaching people that nobody in the field was reaching, and all because even though the power was out, even though everything else went down, the landline telephones were still working. Right. So we ended up with. a page one story, I, th- I believe, our first of many shared bylines. Um, 
And uh, I am sure it annoyed all the people at the paper who had had such elaborate plans for their people in the field. And then two bozos in the newsroom <laughs> came up with the, the big story. It was a good story, though. And I think we would not be ashamed of it today. No, I went, I went and dug it up. I put it in the column I wrote about you leaving. I think for the first edition... That was that was the story that the, that they didn't have anything from the field yet. But I think for the final edition, they started to hear from some people. And so while our story was still on the front page, there was some other content out there from the people that were exploring it. But it, I, I remember the editor came up to us kind of like nervous, saying, OK, we're, we're not hearing from anybody. Can you guys do something to try and get something together on this? And, uh, and uh, you know, the phone book paid off we right found that people. was a start of a great team a great team effort yeah it was fun I mean, we, we we had to innovate often all right so let's talk about some of the people you've met uh one of the most memorable days you and i have had was just a couple of years ago when jesse jackson came to our newsroom it was not a, a great meeting because of what he pointed out right he uh sadly, uh, arrived shortly after uh, our company had offered a voluntary buyout. And regrettably, the two African-American members of our board both accepted the offer. So when uh, Jesse Jackson came to talk with us, he encountered an all-white board. And Jesse Jackson wouldn't be Jesse Jackson if he didn't both note that and mention it to us. Uh, and we were embarrassed. And I should say quickly, or soon after, did uh, diversify the board again. But uh, I'm no longer on the board, but I, I'm sure I could speak for the board and saying we'd love to have him back again to uh, talk and see what we've done. Yeah, I mean, it was tough. It's 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 not an easy thing to be called up by somebody as legendary as him. And he's right, and we've been working to correct it. It was, I mean, it was it was an honor and a privilege to meet yes, him. Right? I mean, it's it something was. you'll never forget. For but, sure. But when he drops that kind of line on you, it is dispiriting to say the least. One of the things I always liked about working with you is how you push the edge of the envelope. You always push the edge of the envelope and made people uncomfortable. Um, and one of the best examples of that, I guess, uh, came from before I knew you when you were working in New Bedford and you talked your editors into doing something they didn't want to do, which was you covering an appearance of the porn star Marilyn Chambers. Uh, that I did. Uh, for those who don't know New Bedford, it's a city in the southeast coast of Massachusetts. Um, at the time, it was a PM. Not that that matters. But anyway, yes, I heard that um, Marilyn Chambers was going to appear in New Bedford for the world premiere of her movie, Insatiable 2. I think this was probably 1983 or 1984, which for many people was ancient history, but at the time, that's when any city of uh, a certain size had an X-rated movie theater, and the film industry did feature-length porno movies. Uh, this is you know, before internet and videos. Um, and Marilyn was one of the big names of the time 
her name enhanced a little by the fact that before she did porno movies, she was a model and was the mother cuddling the infant on ivory snow detergent boxes. For those of you who remember that. Um, anyway, uh, my city editor wanted no part of that, and I shamed him, pointing out that, and I'm sure it was true, that if we had a world premiere of anything else in that town, we would have been all over it. And he was just scared of this story. And I pointed out that in the right hands, meaning mine, it could be a very funny story. So he finally reluctantly let me go. Uh, and it was every tacky uh, thing that I could have wished for. Marilyn showed up in a Rolls Royce silver shadow and was wearing a mini skirt with a leopard print and posed for a photographer with one high-heeled leg up on the front bumper. And then she went into the uh, movie theater uh, lobby and signed uh, photos of herself, signing them, Love and Lust, Marilyn. Uh, and then I interviewed her a little bit while it down uh, behind me, I could hear moaning, which I assumed was Marilyn, although I have to um, say I never did see the movie. Uh, <laughs> but I do have somewhere in my files uh, a copy of one of those photos uh, autographed to me with love and lust from Marilyn. Your, your editors were not crazy about you doing this story, though. Absolutely not. Although in the end, I, uh, they did like it. I don't remember where it was played, but they did not bury it. I mean, it was, I made uh, good use of the material. Well, and if it were in the internet age, they would have loved it because oh, yeah. it would have been viral in the extreme. You, uh, you also had a run in quite literally with John Kerry long before most of us had ever heard of him. That's right. This is perhaps my uh, favorite uh, run-in with uh, some notable person. Uh, John Kerry, for those of you who don't know, is uh, a former uh, senator and former secretary of state. But when I encountered him, it was probably 1983 or 1984. Again, I was working in New Bedford, and John at the time was the, dep or the uh, lieutenant governor of Massachusetts and had come to our 19th century headquarters uh, to meet with the editorial board. I mentioned the 19th century because the building had an old cage elevator in the main uh, restroom uh, for the at least the second floor where the newsroom and editorial board offices were had a double swinging door like the kind that you have at restaurants. Um, so it would swing both ways. Uh, and in restaurants, if you've ever worked in one, I think you have, I have, um, they can be dangerous. But uh, so I was on deadline that day and I uh, needed to run to the men's room and I did. And as was customary for me, I gave that door a flick. And when it, uh, when it flipped in, I heard a bang 
and, and I thought, what fool was standing in front of that door? <laughs> Everyone should know. Uh, anyway, that fool was John Kerry, um, who was little, um, uh, not all that harmed. He didn't get a purple heart for that one. But the, uh, anyway, I apologized, uh, not too profusely, but because uh, I really did have to get to the bathroom. But anyway, that was John Kerry. I voted for him for president almost exclusively because if he had become president, <laughs> I would have been able to say I whacked the president with the men's room door, which would have been a great story. It would have been a great story. It's still a great story. Let's talk about some stories. The first one was remarkable for both of us. It was an investigative series that you and I did on lead paint in public housing across Florida. Normally, with an investigative story, someone has tipped you to a subject and you have a roadmap. You go and get the details to fill it in. But not this one. This one was 100% us figuring things out from a zero start. It it was indeed. It's why, really, of all stories, and we have together and separately done some great ones, but this was by far my favorite for that very reason. Um, it, I think, really started in, we were at the time looking into a contractor who had been going around Florida removing lead paint from public housing authorities. Uh, and that was really uh, related, but uh, when we ended up in Fort Pierce, Florida, which is over on the Atlantic coast for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, we uh, started going through files where this fella had removed lead paint. And then going through the boxes of papers, we saw that the housing authority had also hired a tester to detect whether indeed they had lead paint to remove. Um, and in going through the paperwork, we noted that the owner of that company had the same last name as the owner of the company that abated lead paint. So we asked the authority, and they were aware of it, that the, those two were brothers. And according to them, had declared what to us seemed like an unconscionable uh, conflict of interest but that they were okay with. Uh, and not only had this uh, other, they tested, not only had tested for the lead paint, he then helped them uh, write specs for the bids and then helped them evaluate the bidders, i.e. helped them select his brother to do the lead paint removal. So anyway, as you, I am sure, will recall on the drive back to Orlando, we were just speculating about not just the incredible conflict here, but was this a scam that they were doing all over the state? We knew the one brother was removing lead paint all over the state. So the question is, is uh, first question is, did the other brother, um, was he the one that detected the lead paint and then helped um, pick a, a, a contractor, and and also 
would the lead tester actually be finding lead paint where there wasn't any, creating work, many thousands of dollars of work for his brother? Um, then that was our hypothesis, and then we had to come up with a way of, of proving that, uh, which amazingly uh, we did. Um, we, it, it, which made us travel around the whole damn state oh, of Florida to every rat hole place you could think of with little swabs where we would talk these people into letting us come into their homes and check their trim for lead paint. But right. ultimately, we found we what we had to do was get to a place after the one brother tested it, but before the other brother abated it to right. see if it was there. And we had the aha moment where there was no lead in the paint, even though they had detected there was and awarded a contract to do it. It was That's a big right. deal. It was, it, uh, it was heavy lifting. I mean, we drove all over the state talking about scotch and poker and jazz and all sorts of fun things. But man, we did see the entire state of Florida. And it taught you, if you hadn't already known, the old line about the wrong side of the tracks um, in every one of those podunk towns, you uh, crossed the railroad tracks before you came to the public housing. Well, and the other thing it taught you is if you if you're polite and you're wearing a, a jacket and tie, <laughs> people let you in. I mean, it was it was remarkable. There was only one place I think. Um, they, they wouldn't let us in. It was a woman almost in an Amish bonnet. Right, and, a calico uh, bonnet. Yeah, yes. we said, yeah, we're news reporters. And what did she say? Nothing to report here. Right. <laughs> yes. But one of our failures. We did not get into her, uh, her house. She was the exception. Uh, the white shirt and tie and the legal pad as opposed to a reporter's notebook were, I think, the keys. It was a great scam. I mean, it, it, when you think was. about what they had pulled off, because it leaves no trace, they got tons and tons of money out of it. And, and you know, it, we had to find that one window. Um, I mean, it was fun. We had a good time. I mean, we, we were driving all over the place together. So um, we got to know each other pretty well during that story. But it was one of the, the big wins. The, the next one I wanted to talk about is interesting because it's the one – Again, it's from before our time when we were working together, but it's the one that told you how much of an influence a story could have um, and how what we do can matter, even if it's about something called Brutus the Barking Dog. Yes. Well, um, this goes back to my very first paper, a little daily in upstate New York, and me, a very inexperienced reporter. But everyone loves a dog story. And, um, and, if it's a bizarre dog story, even more so, and this was one of them. Um, I can't remember how we learned about this, probably from a tip, but Brutus was a mutt, a family pet, and the town dog warden had issued him so many uh, tickets for barking that he had ordered that the family get rid of Brutus. Um, and I... I contacted the family, uh, and they had children, as I recall, and the mother was tearful. I mean, beside herself, uh, that they might have to get rid of the beloved family pet. Um, and they, as I recall, had a hearing before 
the justice of the peace. So I wrote a story about Brutus the dog and uh, his plight. Um, and I don't know if it was the next day, but very soon after I, I got a call from a local veterinarian who um, also happened to be on uh, one of the school boards that I covered, you know, in a small paper, you covered a lot of stuff. Um, anyway, so I was quite familiar with this guy. And he said that uh, he had a solution for Brutus that he could surgically mute uh, Brutus's vocal cords, which uh, at least temporarily they would eventually grow back, but that would uh, greatly reduce Brutus's barking power. I think he also offered to do it pro bono. Right? So I did a story about Brutus uh, undergoing this surgery. The veterinarian had told me that he actually didn't like doing this because he personally believed that dogs had a right to expression, uh, i.e. barking. But um, he did it uh, because otherwise it would have been Brutus's last days, or at least last days with his family. Um, and all was well for about a year or two, a happy ending. So uh, that was impact number one. But I hung around at that paper a while, and two years later, I got a call back from the uh, mother of uh, the kids and Brutus's owner saying that Brutus's uh, vocal cords had regained strength and he was had again been sighted and was going to appear, had to appear before the town court um, to possibly be removed. So anyway, the mother at that point said she was trying to raise, uh, get some money to get a lawyer to fight this. So I wrote that story and every school kid in three counties started raising money for Brutus Defense Fund. Um, and so we wrote about that. And in the end, uh, some lawyer did step forward um, and actually said he would make the case that a dog, uh, borrowing from the veterinarian's philosophy, that every dog had a right to expression. So the night of the court hearing, this was before a justice of the peace um, in upstate New York, and uh, the uh, justice allowed Brutus to appear, uh, which I knew in advance. What I did not know was that the uh, New York Daily News and AP also showed up, and the Daily News sent a photographer, which at time, uh, cameras were not allowed in New York courtrooms, uh, but this justice of the peace, either knowingly or, or not, allowed the photographer in to get a photo of Brutus sitting there. Um, and the justice of the peace uh, ended up a ruling without uh, acknowledging a dog's right to ex expression, but nonetheless let Brutus off the hook. He could return to his family uh, without additional um, surgical muting of his focal cords. So anyway, we, we saved Brutus. You saved uh, Brutus. You rallied the community right. I mean, it's about the power of what the I media think, can do. 
right? AP, at least the regional AP uh, named that story as one of their top 10 of that year. So yeah, that's a cool thing for somebody yeah. just starting out. All right, we've talked about a couple of stories that show journalism in the good light, but this next one shows what happens when bad people get roles as decision makers in newsrooms. We both dealt with some that were pretty monstrous. And this is a story for which many people know the subject. It's the Big Dan's rape case that became the subject of a movie with Jodie Foster and Kelly McGillis. And I got to say, I don't think any discussion of your career could be complete without a reference to your former colleague, John in Pemba. Right. John was a character and he is the, uh, either the villain or the star of the story. Um, anyway, for those who don't know, the Big Dan's rape case involved uh, a woman who is gang raped on a pool table uh, by four men in the uh, north end of New Bedford which we've already discussed. The story gained national attention, really international attention, because the woman said at the time, and the police reported at the time, that uh, in addition to the four men who participated in the gang rape, other patrons of the bar cheered them on. Now, it later, uh, that was called into dispute, and, including the victim kind of walking that back, but not until really to the trial. So with the cheering as part of the storyline for weeks, uh, every, the whole world converged on poor New Bedford for this case. We, meanwhile, were uh, further handicapped by the fact that our editor uh, and a, a, a Massachusetts Supreme Court justice at the time had created what they called the Massachusetts Bench Bar Press Association. I looked at, I tried to look it up today and I don't think it exists anymore. But at the time, they had written up voluntary guidelines for protecting the pretrial rights of defendants. Um, and I suspect that we were the only news outlet in the whole state that abided by those guidelines, but those guidelines included that you would make uh, no mention of any statements made by defendants prior to trial. Um, and uh, that would include if police or prosecutor said the defendant um, confessed to the crime, we wouldn't write that. Um, and we actually, um, in stories, which are common everywhere else, uh, if police said John Doe shot Jane Doe, we would not be able to report that. We would have to say Jane Doe was shot and John Doe was charged with murder. So uh, given that, we're dealing with uh, national competition and dealing with those little hurdles in-house. Um, and one of the defendants um, called our Metro desk at the time uh, and uh, offered to grant an interview. And my friend uh, and colleague, John Mpemba, uh, was the one who answered the phone. Uh, and while knowing that this would run counter to our policy, he, without asking anyone, grabbed a notebook, went up to the jail and interviewed the defendant, Victor Raposo, I believe was his name. Um, 
And then he came back and he wrote up a story, which uh, the editor, of course, didn't run. Um, and several days transpired. And at, at some point, uh, Victor's uh, attorney learned that his client had granted a jailhouse interview and went to court and got a, uh, an injunction barring us from reporting this story, which for those in journalism, that's known as prior restraint and violation of the First Amendment. Um, so that then we suddenly became front page news for all of the visiting journalists. Um, and our editor uh, went, I believe, on Nightline at the time with Ted Koppel, ancient history again. Um, he went, he appeared on various shows, but Ted Koppel and in, during that, he said that one, the the reporter John had come back and not written a story, and so he had not yet known whether the story was of news value, um, but that he would fight the the uh, injunction uh, and stand up for First Amendment principles, which indeed we did. We successfully fought the injunction, but then, as we all knew, but the rest of the world didn't, um, the editor then got on and said that he had looked at what John had received during the interview and decided there was no news value to it or that whatever news value there was did not override the pretrial rights of the defendant. Um, what our editor didn't know at the time was that John had applied to the Boston Herald. Uh, and within, I think, a week of um, that, uh, John went off to the Herald. Um, and this is where the story really gets weird. I got a call at about 5.30 in the morning. We were a PM paper, but we had like a 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. deadline and was ordered into the newsroom. They wouldn't tell me why. Um, I suspect because they wanted to see whether I was in cahoots with this. And when I walked in, they slapped a copy of the Boston Herald's front page down. And there was the interview with Victor Raposo uh, by John and Pemba. Um, so uh, I looked at it. and. Uh, said, okay, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, you're going to have to do a story about this. Uh, and the editor will uh, be ready for you to interview him. So I went back and the editor, uh, of course, claimed he hadn't read the story yet. Um, I walked back and about 10 minutes later, I got a written uh, statement from the editor uh, in which, uh, and the two salient terms were, he called John lower than a slithering salamander and a thief. So then I had to call John, who, like I said, was a friend of mine, really. You know, they had no business having me do this story. I should have, had I known at 5.30 in the morning what they were up to, should have declined, but I didn't. Uh, so I called John and I said, John, uh, and I did, do this, said this, all friendship aside here, I am a reporter calling you on a news story, um, and 
editor of the Standard Times has called you lower than a slithering salamander and a thief, I need within 10 minutes your response. So John called me back in 10 minutes, and his only response was, John Mpemba is no thief. Anyway, many years later in Orlando, I was sitting across from a colleague of both of ours, Larry Lebowitz, who at that time was a reporter at the Patriot Ledger in, I think, Braintree, Massachusetts. Uh, And he said, wow, you were in New Bedford. I remember a time when the editor there called a reporter lower than a slithering salamander. And I said, right. That that reporter was a friend of mine, and the story you read was written by me. But it's but it just it does uh, show what happens when people um, who don't have the the basic journalistic principles are in charge. I mean, that's just the, the, everything about that story is is wrong. Yes. Except that John M. Pemba did write the story for another outlet that had the courage to run it. Um, I got a couple of days. Uh, yeah, I've, there there are a bunch of good memories of, of working together, but there's one day in particular that I think I would have to pick is my my favorite uh, uh, Chris Quinn, Mark Vosberg story, and it probably was when we were doing the lead paint project. I'm not sure because we did a bunch of projects together, um, but but and we had an odd situation that it, you and I didn't work for the same editors. Uh, you worked for one, I worked for another. When I wasn't working on projects, I was doing crime stories, but it felt like six months every year uh, I was off doing a project, usually with you. So so your editor was the editor of our projects, but I didn't answer to your editor, which, which was good because I, I really didn't have a lot of confidence in the competence of your editor often. So, so I don't remember what the story was. It was some takeout we were doing for the weekend. I think it might have been summarizing something or p- putting everything into perspective. Um, and, and, you know, you and I both had pretty high standards of writing. And so when a story came off of our hands together, it, it was usually pretty polished. When you looked at the story, it was clean. By the time you and I both went through it, um, editors really didn't find a whole lot to mess with. So we did it and we turned it in. and. This editor was in that whole Chicago Tribune, Orlando Sentinel culture where she she wanted to rise. But to rise there, you basically had to say the emperor had had pretty clothes. I mean, it was one of those weird situations where independent thought was squelched and and people had to to, you know, hold of the hold the line. Right. So so we turned the story in and and she'd been under pressure to to you know, bring us under her thumb. We were seen as wise ass guys who did whatever we wanted. And even though we were doing really good stories that be, because we were, you know, these, we the, were wise ass. Uh, yeah, we were. And, but, but we did great work, but, but because of that, she was constantly under pressure from others to, to squeeze us. <clears throat> so, so we turned the story in and we could see um, what was going on and, and she never looked at it. And so after a few hours, she pulls us aside and and we're standing and I'll never forget it because I, I she's talking to you because you're the reporter and I'm off at the side. 
and she and she says this story just doesn't work for me i i just don't think it works at all and and i you know i think it needs to be rewritten and all this stuff and you were instantly are seething because we knew she hadn't even looked at it that this was a game um and i thought you were going to explode i could see it in your face you just you, you just had no tolerance for that kind of bs but i had an idea <laughs> i said okay 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 you know what this has been a hard story to write. I think the thing we need to do is to get out of the building, go somewhere, clear our heads and take another shot at it. And she said, yes, that's a good thing. <laughs> so we go to your house with no intention of doing that. Um, you poured a couple of scotches. It was probably like three o'clock in the afternoon. You, you were actually uh, in the middle of doing a house renovation. So you pulled out a can of paint and a paintbrush and started finishing painting a stairwell. And I had the, 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 it was a rudimentary laptop computer, and I changed one word in the lead of the story. We agreed we would change one word so we can honestly say it was a revision. And I think we also came up with some explanation if we got caught out on this, but, you know, just in case that we would say, yeah, we really didn't think you looked at the story and we wanted to get it another shot. But because of the system they had there, she didn't have a version we you know we knew she'd really never looked at it and they didn't have a version to go back to so if we were right th there was nobody that could say we hadn't changed the story so so we do all that we come back in we hand the printout um she looks at it for a few minutes and she comes back over and she says exactly this is exactly what we need and we hadn't changed the word and i'll never forget it it was like we saw the game we played the game we won the game and the story ran as we intended you remember this one? Oh, i remember it well um including the painting but yes it was great i should add uh, and you might have forgotten we were standing by her because she had been told uh, by her other peers uh, that she should never allow reporters to stand when she was seated because then we'd be looking down at her. Uh, so <laughs> oh, I never, we were both tall. We were always looking down at her. Right, whether she was standing or not, but I never, ever sat when I was talking to her. I always made sure I was standing just to, well. It was, it was one of those days where you, you just sat back and thought, if, if I'm ever in a position of authority in a newsroom, I'll never do this. I'll never play this game. I'll never put reporters through a phony ringer. I mean, it's, it was just dumb in the extreme. But she got to go back to her colleagues and say, I made them rewrite the story to my standards and, and get the, get the points. Um, of course, another... some, they're going to, someone down there will actually hear this podcast at some point. And it will confirm all their worst uh, <laughs> fears about us, that we were up to no good, that we were pulling fast ones. And but we weren't up to no good. We were writing quality <laughs> stories. Yeah, it's that... a nuance that will be lost on that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Another, another one of the favorites. Um, you, you know, when we, when we came to Cleveland, we, you were in Lake County. I was covering crime. But I think within months, we knew that the most challenging uh, journalism job in Cleveland was covering the final years of Michael R. White as mayor. I mean, that guy was just a smart, uh, but, but very difficult customer. Right. So, so it just seemed like it would be fun to do. And so after a few years, we actually, 
uh, teamed up. We were the city hall team. It was right after the Mike Palencic coup and city hall was a wild and rollicking place. Uh, it was also the early days of email as a public record and reporters really hadn't asked, filed public records requests for emails at that time. We were talking like what, 99, 2000, right? Yeah. So, so we put in a request for all of Mike White's emails to anybody from anybody for a long period of time. And we ended up getting cartons and cartons of it when it came in. I mean, it was like just mounds of it to go through. But man, oh man, it was one of the most illuminating and enlightening things we ever did in looking at a public official. Because back then, they wrote those emails with no idea that somebody else would be reading them. And there were a couple in particular that I liked. Do you remember the one where he came back from a lunch with, with Mike Polensky? Right? <laughs> what did he write? Uh, in case it was, I think, to his secretary. And he said, in case you were interested, the lunch with Polensky was a disaster. <laughs> right. right. That, that was a good one. The other one. The, the other one that came out of that, you know, there was a coup. The Mike, Mike Polensic and Bill Patman and a bunch of guys had overtaken council and ousted the then President Jay Westbrook. And Marty Sweeney, who's well known, he ended up becoming the council president, was part of their team. But in the emails, he was feeding Mike White information about what was going on. And Bill Patman was the, the finance committee chair, the second most powerful position on council at the time. And a very smart man. Yeah, he was he was great to deal with because he was very strategic, one of the smartest politicians we'd ever dealt with. And when we, we, we sat down with him to go over some of the things in the email, because we did a series of stories out of this. Do you remember what he said after we showed him that? Marty's... I'll let you. That It's your favorite line. But yes, I do remember it. I'm reminded of a scene from Stalag 17. And what he was talking about is the scene where they throw the guy out of the, the barracks. Like, like With he's 10 cans tied around him. Yeah, and he gets he shot. Gets shot. It, was a, it was wild. All right, like for the people in Orlando, I think we have to tread into some dangerous territory here to talk about a legendary divorce file. And I'm, I want to be careful. I, I don't want to reveal all about this. I don't think you do either. But but I want to set the stage because you 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 kind of brought this thing to a crashing halt with a very incisive line. Um, but but to set it up, it was in a time of distress for the industry. And so uh, the Sentinel had just gone through a a small layoff. But it was but if you'll recall, there was a big buildup. Like they announced, oh, we're going to have to lay people off. And this was very early in this. So everybody ran around scared to death. I mean, it, it just caused all sorts of anxiety. And then when they finally did it, you know, they laid off like three or four people. But but the damage was done. You know, people looked at the Tribune company differently. But in the big newsroom meeting, when they were talking about it, somebody asked the, the editor then, John Hale, um, are the managers here, but you're saying that things are all tight and you have to cut jobs and I think they were freezing pay. Uh, are the managers still getting their bonuses? And then John Hale said, absolutely not. They're not getting any, any bonuses. Uh, of course not. This is tough. We're all tightening our belts. Well, one of the ranking editors in the newsroom um, a, a little while later went through a divorce and the a reporter in the newsroom went and looked at the divorce file and it showed that he received a bonus um and so this went through the newsroom pretty quickly 
that somebody had looked at the divorce file. I guess the part about the bonus didn't jump out as much because uh, it was probably radioactive. But but word got around about the divorce file. And you remember what happened? You remember how desperately they were trying to figure out who did that? Oh, do I? Because I was uh, not, I mean, according to them, I was not the suspect, but they, um, well, the, the story is the one of the editors, uh, uh, buttonholed me in the hallway and uh, said that he didn't think I was the one who had pulled the file, but that he thought I knew who had done so uh, and that I, he would like me to pass along how troubled the editor was who whose file, whose divorce file it was, that uh, this was all personal and that he was troubled anyone would uh, want to look at it and on and on. And, and let, me, let me interrupt because yeah. let, just to point out how preposterous that is. Like I'm the editor, Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And if, unfortunately, I've been married a long time I, and I'm, I have a, a great wife and relationship is great. But if I had gotten divorced at some point along the way, I would expect pretty much every reporter in the building to comb through that file. Cause that's right. what reporters do. I mean, the, 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 it's one of those things. It's like, of course they're going to look through the file. It's a public record. I'm the editor and they're going to want to know every little detail they can get. That's right. what, the, that's what we do. So it's preposterous to me that there was this outrage, but again, it was and, the tribune environment where you marched, you know, to their and, drum. And had they done a little sleuthing, I think they would have been able to find out uh, from the court. But it, regardless. No, actually, I don't. I think they did do that. And I okay. think on the day um, that that file was pulled for some for somehow uh, that reporter did not have to record their name on well, the uh, pull thing. I think they went. I think they did. They did send people down. They couldn't find it. Um, that was one of the first steps they took. I mean, it was really sinister. They're going to try and figure out who the, the the intrepid reporter was. What's bizarre is, is that they told you up front they didn't suspect you because there really would have only been a couple of suspects right. in my mind. But anyway, I, I, um, I, I believe when, I was a suspect. But anyway, my answer to him was that I said, well, there must be something pretty damning in that file for him to be so worried about it. Um, and, and then they I, finally realized what well, that thing I, revealed. Well, I also then later uh, disclosed to someone who I trusted would communicate it up the line uh, what that damning bit of evidence was. And really, within hours of that being communicated, the witch hunt ended. Yeah, they were worried that if right. that got out, they would be right. real in a big amount of trouble. There was a small group of us that knew exactly what that file showed, right. um, that there was dishonest. They tried to claim that these were uh, bonuses that had been broken up over the years. There's a bunch of hooey. They gave out bonuses. They said they weren't going to. Um, and it, and it was just, it was an inch. I mean, it, it's an odd one because I think most people listening would think, of course, reporters are going to look that up. What, what, re, what reporter wouldn't want to look at that? Um, and, but, but there it was just not that way. And, so I, the reason I bring it up is I, I saw something on Facebook in the last three months, 
where somebody referenced the infamous divorce file. So even though things have changed a lot in the 25 years since we left there, that's still part of the legend. Right. I, well, as you and I have learned in the last couple of weeks, a lot of the stuff that we did down there <laughs> remains uh, part of the legend. So, and your story about us uh, drinking scotch and painting my living room will add to the legend. Right. And rewriting our story by changing right. one word. Yes. All right. Beyond work, we shared a love of a bunch of things. We, we I mentioned single malt scotch before. There was one night in Jacksonville uh, where I still don't know how we did it. We had a whole sampler of five, and then I think we polished and, off a uh, bottle uh, of Lafroy, and yeah. we're up at like seven o'clock the next morning going over itty bitty numbers on spreadsheets for hours. Um, a very memorable night. I don't know how how we did we it. Killed that entire bottle of Lafroy, <laughs> and I, and I think we went. Went to a brew pub for dinners. So. <laughs> right, it was. It was. We were younger then. Yeah, uh, we we spent a lot of time with jazz. Uh, with, with one of the things that sparked that is you had a break in at your house and they took all your your records, um, and so there was this great period of you were going to replenish your supply. And as we drove around the state of. of Florida, we're using the Penguin Guide to Jazz to identify, well, you know, if you're going for the best, what's the best? And it was a fun exploration. You and I have talked about doing a, uh, a jazz podcast, which we're going to try. Uh, and then, but the, but the thing I wanted to ask you about here is was poker. Um, we, there was a game that was run by one of the, the guy who hired us both in Orlando, hosted a game once a month um, where, where you a and I the guy. next day... He was a good guy, Jim Clark. I have an autographed book from him. He's a historian so now, and he um and he hosted this game with us, and and you know he lost all his money, good, but it but he just seemed to have a good time. Uh, but you and I would then spend you know two three hours as we're driving around the state of Florida and other things talking about it, because we used what we learned from playing poker, the tells and the signs to hone the reporting. Talk about a little bit about how every reporter should, should learn from playing poker. Right. It, or if they don't play poker, they should, they should start. <laughs> uh, I, yes, it, I, uh, and, uh, and you are too, a great observer of the people that you're interviewing. And that's, that's, goes beyond just listening to what they say. It's how they say it and what where their eyes are going, whether they maintain eye contact with you, their body language, um, even the stuff around them in their office that uh, or wherever the setting might be, that can give you additional insight into where they're coming from and whether they're being truthful. Um, and, you know, it pays off at the poker table, but it also pays off in reporting. Um, and I encourage everyone to take up the game. I, yeah, it, it, it really was something that I think made us both better reporters. 
Let's wind it up with Arlo. We were, separately, before we met, both fans of Arlo's Thanksgiving song, Alice's Restaurant. My sister was a folk singer when I was a kid. She had the original record. You came to it, too. And in Orlando, you created a tradition. I wasn't a part of it for the first couple of years, which I think were 90 and 91, maybe. But I have been since, and for a quarter century now, it's been a tradition for just you and me. Talk about that tradition, which sadly, I think, came to an end with our gathering last year. Well, I hope actually it didn't come to an end, but we'll, we will see. But yes, uh, on the um, day before Thanksgiving, when uh, we would uh, end our day at work, uh, I would uh, gather with some colleagues and we would, um, at, in Orlando, we stopped at 7-Eleven and we all bought uh, tall boys in paper bags back in Florida. You could do that. And we sat in the car and we listened to Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant, which, as you know, has Thanksgiving as one of the, one of the subjects. Uh, if not the theme. Uh, and uh, eventually you joined the uh, group. I, right. I think you only missed it. was the third year. Yeah, third year. year. Yeah. Um, and then when we uh, moved up here, the, the first year, as uh, you recall, you and I, I think, met up in the parking lot of the Golden Gate yep. shopping mall. Um, and we dialed in one of our friends from Orlando who had been part of the crew and the three of us listened to it. Um, in subsequent years, um, we switched to scotch instead of tall boys and you and I, um, did it alone. Um, usually on, um, <laughs> parked on street around by the uh, plane dealer. Um, right. It, it, yeah. it, it's just been a tradition that we carried on. We we actually switched from beer, if you'll recall, because I got diagnosed with celiac disease right. and I, I couldn't drink the beer. I so, was not going to disclose that, but yes, yeah. I remembered the reason. And yeah. uh, and it was a it was a great tradition. Um, look, I only said it was the last one because when you said, hey, we have to get together in the pandemic and do this safely, because I think it's the last one. I hope it's not the last one. It's right. been uh it's been something I actually treasure. Uh, and, and look, I uh, I got to say it. I, I This career has been a, a much better time for me because all the years I got to work with you, I, I it was fun. It, it, you and I thought the same way. I think the number of times we disagreed, you can count it on one hand. We had the same... Uh, the, the same sense of strategy, the same sense of, of deciphering puzzles, um, the same distrust of, of anybody in authority. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm just grateful. Work for. <laughs> Oftentimes. Uh, so I'm grateful that, that, uh, that I got to work with you all those years. I, I hope you have a great retirement. Uh, anything you want to close well, with? Well, I am grateful too. I, I, looking back um, at all the, fun times. And like I said at the beginning, the fun times are the ones that count. Uh, a huge number of them were fun with you. Uh, not just fun with you, fun because of you. Um, I mean, like you just said, we uh, thought alike and saw opportunities for having fun and 
carried them out. And I will be forever grateful. I'm not sure I would have made it through to the end without uh, all of those fun times to keep me going. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And well, I mean, obviously, you and I are going to stay in touch. Yes. Just be doing it through the news media. Okay, that'll do it. Thanks to Mark for his participation in this discussion it's a it's a been a fun a fun one to reminisce thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast 